Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Hi, I'm Jim Pethokoukas, and welcome to my AEI conversation with Matt Ridley. Matt is the award-winning and best-selling author of numerous books, including The Evolution of Everything and The Rational Optimist. His new book, the primary focus of our conversation today, is How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. And since 2013, Matt's also been a member of the House of Lords. Well done. Uh, Matt, good to chat with you today. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. I, I've noticed from doing events and my many podcasts uh, that listeners love when I read. So I'm just going to read a few sentences I've cobbled together from uh, your book uh, as a lead into my first question. You write in the book, innovation is the most important fact about the modern world, but one of the least well understood. It is the reason that most people today live lives of prosperity and wisdom compared with their ancestors. And the main ingredient in the secret sauce that leads to innovation is freedom. Freedom to exchange, experiment, imagine, invest, and fail. Liberals have argued since at least the 18th century that freedom needs prosperity. But I would argue that they have never persuasively found a mechanism, the drive chain by which one causes the other. Innovation is that drive chain, that missing link. Innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. Matt, do you think you've written a contrarian book here in 2020? <laughs> there seems to be a growing belief. We haven't innovated since the Apollo space program. Living standards have been stagnant for decades. Growth only helps the elite. Growth kills the climate. And, and innovation comes from smart central planners implementing industrial policy in carefully chosen sectors. Is this a contrarian book? Well, it is, if those are your views, because I, I say that innovation is the product of free people exchanging ideas freely, and that, uh, yes, we are, we are experiencing innovation, although I do argue towards the end of the book that we are experiencing something of an innovation famine, particularly here in the Western world. Uh, there are areas that we have not been able to get enough innovation going in recently, and the pandemic has rather reminded us of that. You know, we haven't been able to innovate in diagnostic devices or vaccines as much as we would have liked. I think if you ask these days, assuming people think that innovation is good, and I'm not sure as many people as you who think innovation is good. They, they, when they hear about innovation, they think of disruption and job loss and maybe AI run wild. But if you think innovation is good and we need more of it, I'm not sure, getting back to my question, how many people would say, well, we just need more freedom. I think they would say, well, we, we need more government. We need a more powerful innovation geared state to work its magic uh, on the private sector and on, and on, and on science. That, that seems to be the, where, the, where the energy is right now. 
And yeah, I think you're right, and and I think uh, I mean this is partly because people always have a have a sort of top down view of the world that that they think that the world is run by people. They don't think of it as being a, an organic and spontaneous uh, for effect of everybody reacting with each other. They assume that if something happens, it's because someone ordered it to happen. And I very much argue that that's not the case in this book. I very much argue that innovation is something that bubbles up inexorably and inevitably if you allow people to the freedom to experiment and. And try new ideas, um, uh, and that you can't, as it were, stop. Uh, well, you can't direct it, and you can't plan it. But there is definitely a tendency these days to say that we must decide which innovations we want, and which innovations we're going to get, and which innovations we're going to subsidise from the public funds. And I think that is a dangerous tendency because the the history of innovation shows that you can't do that. I mean, you can't suddenly make um, supersonic. Uh, flights cheap you know there are physical limits to things uh, and you can't suddenly make a low carbon economy uh, um, easily you know it might be possible over the long run but it won't come about instantly um, and yes we have been innovating uh, as a society uh, somewhere in the world at any one time and for goodness sake if we don't keep doing so uh, we will find that prosperity dries up pretty fast i think one reason, and, uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure you remember this, is back in the 1980s, you know, there, there was a concern about, at least in the United States, about, you know, whether Japan was going to be the leading economy of the future. And people looked at how Japan, at least how we thought at the time, how it did innovation. And that was through very smart bureaucrats at key agencies. And there were a lot of people back then who said, you know what, we need to do what they do. That, who knows? Maybe maybe free enterprise, that was the way to innovate in the past. But now we're much smarter and we need to have very smart people making decisions in government. Uh, didn't work out so well. I'm not sure that was actually how Japan was innovating. And now today we have a similar situation where now people see China, they see those very fast growth rates. They hear about its huge advances in AI and they hear it has big ideas for the future that's gonna become the leader in AI and aerospace and just about everything else you can think of. And they think, well, now they figured out another model. They seem to be doing great. Isn't that, do you think that's one reason people have been sort of skeptical about sort of the freedom argument? And, but do they have a point? Has China figured out a different, maybe better way to do innovation? No, I think I think you're exactly right. I think people misread Japan in the 1980s. They 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 said this has come about because the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, MITI, has has specifically singled out sectors which are going to be the future and has invested in them, and that's why Japan is such an innovative country. And that was always nonsense. It, once you look, looked under the bonnet of what was happening in Japan, it wasn't because clever bureaucrats were telling people what to invest uh, in and what to invent. Uh, it was because uh, Small firms, big firms, particularly middle-sized firms, were uh, just going out there and trying new things uh, and were developing new technologies at an extraordinary rate. Um, the same mistake is being made about China today, I believe. It is an innovative country. It's, you can't deny that it has not just caught up with the United States, but in some areas has overtaken it in terms of consumer electronics, consumer digital behavior, and so on. There are some uh, you know, front-of-the-pack stuff happening in Japan, sorry, in China. But uh, the, to say that that's because it's a communist regime with a centrally directed plan to innovate is simply wrong. Because if you look at what happens in China, yes, it has a very strong monopolistic and uh, uh, 
authoritarian political regime. Uh, but as long as you don't annoy the Communist Party, below that level, there is a huge amount of freedom. It is not directing what entrepreneurs do. And in fact, an, an ordinary entrepreneur in China who decides to build a factory to, to do something new uh, can do the whole thing in a matter of weeks, which would take years in the West to get permission from all the various bureaucracies and regulations. So in that sense, uh, a Chinese entrepreneur is freer. That said, China is getting worse in terms of authoritarianism. It is becoming much more of a dirigiste state. For a while, it was drifting towards democracy. That has been reversed. Uh, and I think you will find that the Chinese bureaucrats will think they can direct and control exactly what happens in innovation. And if they do try that, they will kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. And just like Japan, it will no longer be at the front of the pack for very long. So I wouldn't bet on China being the lead innovative country in the world for a very long time, unless it can democratize and liberate its regime. Do you think, and this is often, you know, this is an ongoing debate, whether China can, over the long term, be an innovative, entrepreneurial state without being much freer. Right now, it looks like they've, they've managed to do both. They've managed to be an authoritarian country with one political party and also be highly innovative. So you think that is not sustainable, that either they're going to stay authoritarian and become less innovative, or if they want to be innovative, they're going to have to be move slowly toward being a, a freer, more open, democratic nation. In the long run, I think that's right. I mean, I think China may pull the trick off for, for a while yet, but I think it is simply not possible, given the role that freedom plays in innovation, as I argue, the, the, the ability of the entrepreneur to change his mind, to change direction, to, uh, to um, suddenly try one thing and then another, to do a lot of trial and error, to make a lot of mistakes, and in the end to come up with something new and, and impressive that will change the world. Given the importance of that, I feel that in the long run, that is not compatible with a regime that tries to control things from above. Uh, and China has been here before. In the Song Dynasty around a thousand years ago, it was the most innovative place in the world. And it was responsible for a series of extraordinary innovations, printing and all those kind of things. Uh, and these came about because the Song Dynasty was not a very centralized regime. It was a fragmented regime in which there was a lot of local autonomy uh, and there was a lot of freedom. Then uh, the Mongols uh, invaded, and after that came the Ming Empire, and the Ming were quite the opposite of the Song. They wanted tight, centralized control of everything. Uh, they literally controlled where, where you could travel, and, and they needed a report from every merchant on how much stock he held uh, in his warehouse um, at regular intervals. Um, the mandarins at the center did. This was a recipe for killing uh, innovation, and sure enough, China sank into uh, lack of innovation and uh, eventually extreme poverty over the next few centuries. So um, the, the lesson there is that if you, if you run an authoritarian regime and it gets more and more intrusive into the life of ordinary small businessmen, then you will stop innovation. It's quite easy to do. I wonder then if we, if we worry too much then about China being a, a leading technological power uh, that having an authoritarian country be on the technological frontier, if if those just two things aren't sustainable, and and and, and, I, and I and I worry that then we're, we're so worried about it that we figure well they maybe they figured out a different model and that's what we have to follow and because already at least in the United States there's more and more talk about industrial policy and 
you know, we need to, we need to be picking the site. I mean, everybody knows AI is the future. So we need to, you know, invest in a lot in AI and everybody knows biotech's the future. So we have to invest in biotech. And I wonder if that is the lesson. There's just not a lot of confidence in the United States right now that, that freedom and free enterprise are ultimately the best path to being a, to being and staying and pushing forward that technological frontier. Yeah, well, the, the, the government, even in the US, has a, has a very poor track record of picking winners. It's quite often good at losers are picking the government to help them. And if you go back to the 1980s, when the worry was about Japan, all the emphasis was on having a policy for semiconductor manufacture, uh, for memory manufacture in particular. Uh, you know, this was going to be absolutely vital to have a strategic interest in keeping memory manufacture uh, onshore. Uh, it completely missed the fact that the that memory were turning into a memory chips were turning into a commodity, uh, and the action was moving to microprocessors and eventually to software. Um, and uh, if you go back even further, go back to 1903, the U.S. government poured an enormous amount of money for the time into a project to develop the first airplane. Uh, and it was a guy called Samuel Langley, who was head of the Smithsonian and a very distinguished uh, astronomer. Uh, and he went off in secret and built an enormous machine that was going to leap into the air at the first attempt. Uh, and he didn't um, test the parts of the machine and he didn't talk to other people. Uh, and it flopped straight into the Potomac when it was launched. Uh, and there was humiliation for the US government. Ten days later, on an island off North Carolina, two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, who had done it completely differently. They tested all the components separately again and again and again in gliders and kites and other devices. Uh, they had talked to as many people as they could around the world. Uh, they'd drawn on uh, what birds do. They'd used wind tunnel experiments um, uh, and they'd uh, shared their ideas with as many people as possible. Uh, but in front of no crowd at all, they got an airplane into the air. Uh, and for about five years, no one believed them. Uh, and they went to the U.S. government and said, look, we really can give you uh, a fantastic technology to use in the military. And the U.S. government said, uh-uh, we've been there. We've burnt our fingers with Mr. Langley. So the government's record in this area is not great. People cite the Internet coming out of DARPA, and there is some truth in that. But actually, the Internet relied, even in DARPA, it relied on a lot of private sector input. And even when it came out of DARPA uh, into the outside world, it needed to go through a huge amount of innovation and development to turn into what we have now. Uh, so it's uh, giving DARPA the credit for the Internet is a bit like giving a beaver the credit for the Hoover Dam. Um, you, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, toward the end of the book, you do talk about sort of this uh, innovation famine and innovation desert um, that's at least perceived to have been the case since the early 1970s. Uh, at least if you look at official government statistics, there is sort of this downshift in productivity growth, which you think is, re is related to innovation in the early 1970s. And it never really rebounded other than sort of the late 1990s, early 2000s, at least here in the United States. If you look at all the productivity numbers, uh, we, didn't see, we didn't see what we saw uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, it's a very, it's a, it's a highly debated, still debated question. What do you think happened? Why do you think not just the United States, but a sort of across advanced economies, we saw this downshift in productivity, which uh, perhaps Robert Gordon has written about most famously in his, uh, his book, The End of American Growth. What do you think happened there that productivity downshifted and never really came back? Well, I don't think it's quite that bad. I mean, I, I, 
hesitate to get into an argument about the statistics, but but I think when you take into account, uh, you know, the sizes of households and all these kind of things, you can you correct for that. There is still a productivity uh, improvement there, but you're right, there isn't as much as one would expect. Um, now, we've had a period of enormous innovation then. I mean, uh, you're talking about most of my lifetime there, and, and we've gone from, you know, paper to computers and telephones to mobile phones. There's been an extraordinary amount of, of innovation during that period. But as Peter Thiel put it once, we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters. Uh, in other words, most of the innovation has ended up being digital, has been ended up being bits rather than atoms. And Thiel makes the argument that the reason for this is because it's permissionless to go out and start a new business on the internet. To start an e-commerce business, you don't need to ask anyone's permission. You just get out there and start doing it. And uh, that, the contrast with if you want to devise a new drug or a new medical device uh, or a new way of building a bridge, uh, there's going to be an enormous amount of regulatory progress that you have to make uh, before you're allowed to even start. And as a result, we have diverted the energy of entrepreneurs and innovators into digital innovation rather than innovation in atoms and real structures. And we did it, or rather the US did it quite explicitly. Um, the Clinton administration passed a series of measures in the late 1990s that very much were permissive to e-commerce. You know, they deliberately cleared the undergrowth away to make it possible for uh, companies to start uh, building uh, online uh, retail and uh, communications platforms. Uh, and uh, that worked really well. Um, so we, we've diverted our energy, I think, online in the last uh, few decades. And I'm not sure that's what innovation is going to look like in the next few decades. Um, because, uh, you know, we might get back to transport innovation, or we might turn to biotechnology innovation as being the big wave coming next. But I don't myself feel that the America of 2020 is no better than the American of America of 1970. I, I just, I just can't see that argument. Um, uh, the, the the quality of life is extraordinarily better, and people are working shorter hours and living longer lives and eating better food and all these kind of things. So um, I think we are seeing the, the fruits of innovation. It's just they're not showing up particularly in the productivity statistics uh, like they are elsewhere in the world, by the way. I mean, you know, poorer countries are seeing spectacular increases in productivity uh, and in prosperity over the last uh, 10 and 20 years. Uh, that explanation, the one you gave, and the one Peter Thiel talks about that, we've made it harder to do that sort of real world, you know, working with atoms uh, kind of innovation, uh, you, know, due, you know, due to regulation. Not as someone who loves free enterprise and love markets, I, I mean, I love that explanation. In fact, I worry that I love that explanation too much. It's such a comfortable explanation for me. It's it so totally conforms to like my inherent belief system and my biases that I that I wonder that I love it too much and that I'm missing something. Uh, could we be missing something else? Might it be that, I don't know, government's spending less on investment or something's happened with schools or that it really isn't regulation, it's some other explanation? 
Yes, of course. And I think if you, 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 I often make the point that that we saw incredible changes in transportation in the first half of the 20th century, but almost no changes in communication and computing. And then in the second half of the 20th, 20th century, we saw the opposite. We saw very little change in transportation and a huge change in computing. So um, I, I like to show a cartoon published in 1958 of what life would be like in the 21st century. Um, and it's a shot of a very old fashioned mailman delivering perfectly ordinary letters, but he's doing so with a rocket on his back. And that's exactly the wrong way around in both cases. We're not using letters much, we're using emails, but we don't have rockets on the backs of individuals. So we got the future wrong uh, in that sense and didn't understand where it was coming from. Was that because government regulation and interference made it hard to do innovation in transport? No, I don't think it was. I think it was because we'd hit some kind of physical limits that were hard to breach in terms of the efficiency of moving people and goods around uh, on uh, devices. You know, I mean, a supersonic airliner is possible, but on the whole, it burns too much fuel and isn't very efficient. Um, uh, so uh, I think that 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 some of the reasons why innovation shifts from one sector to another are not about uh, the obstruction of bureaucrats or things like that, but some of them definitely are. Uh, and by the way, if you say we haven't seen improvements in transport, one of the most spectacular improvements we've seen in recent years is actually in transport. It's just not in speed, it's in safety. If you look at the uh, fatalities in commercial passenger jets, they have gone down by some gigantic amount in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, uh, per revenue, per million revenue passenger kilometers, they've gone from about 3,000 a year to about 50 a year. You know, that's an unbelievable change. And in 2018, we had a year with zero fatalities in commercial passenger jets. That's extraordinary when you think how many were flying around the world in their millions. Um, so, uh, you know, we are seeing improvements, but they aren't necessarily showing up in our pocketbook. They're sometimes showing up in other aspects of our lives, I think, like safety. Whenever I, uh, I write about this, or I, uh, this issue of innovation and sort of what's, what's gone wrong in, over the past, if, if, if we think something's gone wrong over the past decades, people will start pointing out, you know, maybe maybe it's, there's a cultural reason. Maybe we're just not sort of a, a future-thinking, future-oriented society. They'll say, how many of our films and books portray an optimistic future? Tell a story that uh, that technology can lead to a better future versus a future of uh, a ruined planet or or AI taking over the Earth or or some other you know dystopian scenario. I mean, if I had to sit down and quickly write out a bunch of optimistic movies, it'd be, it'd be way easier to write the opposite, where, where it all's terrible and we should fear the future. Absolutely. This is something I've been complaining about for years, is that, uh, you know, I, I just cannot remember a Hollywood film in which the future is portrayed positively. There might be some, but I can't remember one. Uh, or in which uh, an innovator or a businessman is portrayed positively. The only kind of businessman who's ever portrayed positively in Hollywood, as far as I can make out, is an architect for some reason. I guess that's because he's not really an, a businessman. He's more of an artist. Um, you know, there are these strange obsessions with dystopian futures 
uh, which, and by the way, this, this is nothing new. You know, fiction has done this ever since Brave New World. Um, we've always told ourselves that the future is going to be terrible and the future's always been fine. And I, you know, I, I'm quite passionate about this. When I was 12, 13 years old, uh, was the environmental movement was just getting started and I was very interested in natural history. I was interested in all this. And, and I became extremely pessimistic about the future because the grown-ups were telling me, you know, that the oil was running out, the population explosion was unstoppable, famine was inevitable, pesticides were killing us, our lifespans were going to shrink, et cetera, et cetera. It just went on and on and on. And I thought, well, uh, it's been nice to be alive and it's been great, but now I'm, you know, approaching teenagedom. I better work out what I'll do in the last few years before I die a poisonous death. Um, and... So when the 1980s came along and my country and others started prospering quite mightily, I was genuinely shocked. It took me by surprise. So one of the things I try and do today is tell 12-year-old and 14-year-old kids in schools, they are telling you that you have no future. You know, we've stolen your future, you know, um, whatever Greta Thunberg says. Uh, it's just not true. Uh, you know, even the Climate change projections show that we are going to get richer uh, in this century. It's just we might not get quite so ri so much richer uh, if we have climate change as if we don't. That is literally what the models say. I wonder if this. I wonder if it if it matters. I, I'm sort of worried it does matter the stories we tell ourselves, and particularly people are, people seem to be really worried that AI is about to take all our jobs and we need a robot tax maybe, or that we need, we need to somehow slow down technology, even though we were, we've just spent 10 minutes talking that there's been this downshift, you know, in official statistics at least on productivity and innovation. Yet at the same time, we've sort of never been more worried that everyone, there'll be three people who, have, who will own all the robots and the, le and the rest of us will be living in hovels and on universal basic income or, 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 or something. So, I kind of think it matters now, maybe in a way that it did in the, in the past for some reason, the stories we tell ourselves about the future. Well, I think the, the idea that automation and innovation steals jobs is an old idea that has been around for more than 200 years since the Luddites were smashing textile machinery in, in Britain. Uh, and it's been wrong all along. We've said throughout this period that automation is going to kill jobs. In the early 1960s, the US had a presidential commission to look into the inevitable mass unemployment that was going to come about as a result of the introduction of computers into factories. It didn't happen. We now have more people in employment than ever before. We did before this current crisis, I should say. Um, and uh, that's because what innovation does is, is it creates new jobs, new opportunities, and it creates the prosperity with which the consumers buy these new services from other people. Uh, and there will always be things we want other people to do for us uh, if we're consumers and we can acquire it. Um, but it's also worth considering, I think, that uh, we are sharing out more leisure. We are working less hard. I mean, if you take someone in the early 20th century, uh, when life expectancy was uh, less than 60, there was no such thing as retirement. Um, most people left school at 14, 15 and went straight into the workforce. Uh, the, the average work week was about 60 hours. Um, you didn't get much holiday. Uh, 
Um, they were spending 25% of their entire life on the planet at work. Not count, The rest was sleeping or eating or, or weekends or uh, ch childhood or something. Today, less than 10%. If somebody lives to 85 and they're in education or retirement for half of their life, which is quite probable, and they're working um, uh, five days a week, five-sevenths of every week, and they're working eight uh, hours every day, so one-third of every day, and they're taking normal holidays and so on, it's less than 10% of their life that they will spend at work. So for 10% of your life, you can earn enough to support your life uh, and to give other people a li living. That is what technology and automation and innovation has done for us. And we've shared it out pretty equitably. We've not gone to the point where a few people are working incredibly hard and a lot of people are not. The current worry about automation and artificial intelligence taking jobs is a surprisingly sort of upper middle class worry. In other words, the, the reason we're hearing so much about it at the moment is because in the past it was just farm laborers who were losing their jobs or factory workers. Well, now it's lawyers and doctors, for goodness sake, who might be automated. That's really scary. <laughs> it almost, uh, this almost puzzles me as this idea that robots are about to take all the, all the jobs at the same time as, we're, as we, I think, in my view, haven't had nearly enough innovation. Uh, whenever I, I, I read about Europe and European economies, they seem to be desperate to be more innovative. They seem to be desperate to have more technology companies and bigger technology companies. They, there's all, there's, I don't know how many white papers I, I've seen about the, the, the entrepreneurial deficit, the innovation deficit. And now in this country, where we have these big technology companies, which seem to be pretty innovative and seem to spend a lot of money on innovation, we sort of have very mixed views about them. And you mentioned Peter Thiel uh, earlier. Uh, talking about how maybe because of government we haven't had all the innovation we would we would like, but some people blame these. They blame Silicon Valley. They say Silicon Valley has failed us because they haven't thought big enough. And the reason we you know don't have flying cars is because all they want to do is kind of modify consumer services. So instead of getting a flying car, we got Uber. And maybe Uber is great, but it's not the flying car. Is there a problem with Silicon Valley that it just doesn't dream big enough for whatever reason? Well, um, I think seen from Europe, uh, Silicon Valley has been a spectacular success. And if you're grumbling over there about the fact that you've got Facebook and Amazon and Google uh, in your backyard uh, delivering extraordinary benefits, online shopping, whatever it might be, um, uh, we we would kill for a bit of that in Europe. I mean, Europe has failed to produce a single digital giant to rival Facebook, Amazon, Google, or indeed their Chinese rivals. You know, China has produced these kind of big companies. We can't do it in Europe. Why? Because we have a very dirigiste and centralized regulatory system that tries to tell tech companies what to do. And we pick fights with big Silicon Valley companies all the time in Europe. We're constantly trying to take Google down a peg or take Facebook down a peg. Um, so it's not true that we're desperate that we're keen on innovation in Europe and you're not in the US. I think that's a myth. Um, uh, we, we, we talk about it a bit, 
But then we in, introduce policies that just don't get it, don't get it right. I mean, I write in the book about uh, Britain's most innovative and successful entrepreneur who's called James Dyson, and he invented a bagless vacuum cleaner. And uh, he came up against a new regulation in the European Union, which said um, that all vacuum cleaners must be tested as to how much power they use, because we're worried about uh, energy usage. Uh, and this must be uh, published, uh, and you're not allowed to use more than a certain amount of power. But all vacuum cleaners must be tested without dust. And he said, well, what's this all about? What, what, what do you mean? You, how, how do you test a vacuum cleaner without dust? And it turned out that the big uh, German white goods manufacturers who made vacuum cleaners that have bags in them didn't want the regulations to favor Dyson's product, uh, which works fine with dust in it. Theirs has to use more power when there's dust in it. it, it so they'd been designed to increase their power usage uh, when they got half clogged with dust and they didn't want to have to reveal this fact. So they had lobbied the European Commission to bring in this regulation, which was quite different to the regulations elsewhere in the world. So Dyson went to court. The court uh, found against him. Dyson did a Freedom of Information Act to find out what, who had been lobbying the court. And sure enough, dug up a treasure trove of appalling corporate, corporate lobbying. So he appealed. Uh, he won his appeal. Uh, the uh, regulations were struck down. By now, five years had passed and the Chinese competitors had caught up. That's the kind of um, straitjacket with, with, within which European innovators have to work. Um, and that, by the way, is one of the reasons James Dyson was one of the leaders of the campaign for Brexit. He wanted to get us out into a world where we could be uh, join the world and use world standards rather than uh, uh, European standards and uh, have um, a competitive open free trading system. And that's what we're planning to do next year when we're fully out of the European Union. You know, that story you just told really to me is a good encapsulation. One of my concerns about this sort of recent enthusiasm, uh, at least in the United States about industrial policy is that they assume that we're going to have these, you know, very smart, independent, selfless bureaucrats in the new Department of Innovation or the Department of Technology, whatever they want to call it, who will, based purely on their, you know, on their best estimate of the science and technology, make these decisions about what technologies to fund or maybe what companies to fund. But I think the history of politics is that is not how it's going to work. There will be lobbying of the government and companies that are friendly with the government might get, might get help and those that aren't, well, forget about them making the wrong decisions. I think it'd be hard enough for them to make the right decisions if they're trying to make the right decisions, much less if these decisions are being influenced by politics. Yeah, well, Brink Lindsay and Steve Tellers have a very good book called The Captured Economy, which is about how things like uh, regulations, but also the intellectual property system and things like um, occupational licensing have created barriers to entry that, that help incumbent businesses uh, and don't help insurgent businesses. Uh, and that this is an increasing problem in the US, but it's also an increasing problem uh, in the UK. Um, and the, you know, we need to find ways of encouraging small insurgent businesses to, to come along because big businesses are not good at innovation. I, may, I make this point in the book. Um, uh, you know, if you look at what happened to Kodak, they were mugged by digital photography. Um, they actually invented digital photography at one point, 
but they didn't like the look of it. It didn't look very efficient and they didn't really want to disturb their monopoly on film, near monopoly. Um, uh, likewise, Nokia became the biggest mobile phone company in the world with more R&D than the rest of the industry put together, enormously successful company. Uh, and then it was so invested in voice that it didn't see the data revolution coming and didn't want to know about it. And it was mugged by its competitors, basically Apple, uh, and it ended up uh, um, sold for a, for a pittance uh, some years later. So um, we need to allow small companies, small entrepreneurs to challenge big ones. That's the big uh, thing that we need to be able to do. Um, the freedom to go out there and take on these big organizations, which have the ear of government often. And as you say, if there are, if there's a Department of Innovation in Washington, you will very soon be hearing from uh, the big companies and not the small companies if we're not careful. One other question about China just popped in my head. I wanted to ask you, do you think it is necessary for a country to have some big external threat to sort of wake up that to wake up a country and figure, oh, we you know we need to innovate? whether it's spending more on research or getting rid of bad regulations, or do we need to have that threat or just people end up being, they don't want to spend the money. Politicians don't want to spend the money. It's too long-term thinking or people worry about the disruption of innovation that without, and I'm, you know, the space race obviously was greatly driven by the cold war. And there's still, there are some people who sort of welcome now that we have China to replace the Soviet union, that now we have this new external threat and now we can focus on innovating again thanks to China. Do, don't also worry about, you know, obviously, war. So I, I worry about having that kind of external threat. Do we, do we need that? Or, or, do, or is there some other way to persuade people that, yeah, you know, we need to, we need, innovation needs to sort of be at the heart uh, of government policy, whether it's doing more in some areas or in other areas doing a lot less? I, I mean, if, if the, the reaction to Sputnik is the classic example of a government panicking about its failure to be sufficiently innovative when confronted by a rival that appears to have overtaken it in a, in a technology it thought it was leading it. You know, the US government uh, saw Sputnik in the air and, and thought, oh my goodness, we need to, to revolutionize the way we do R&D, uh, we need to catch up, etc. Um, uh, and actually, the, the, the response that that came with a lot of military spending and so on, didn't, I mean, it delivered something, it was bound to, uh, but it didn't really, um, it wasn't really what changed America. What changed America was what was bubbling along in, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor and small companies like that in, the, in, the, in California. Sure, some of them had links to the Defense Department and Stanford University and so on, but it, 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 it really, it misreads history to think that um, uh, it's because Khrushchev put a satellite uh, into Earth orbit that America then took off and became an immensely successful technological uh, leader. Um, I talk quite a lot in the book about the role that the Second World War played in innovation. And I make the case that with the exception of nuclear weapons, which I suspect would not have been developed in the 1940s if it hadn't been uh, a worry that Germany might be developing them too, um, if it, if, with, that, with that exception, the other technologies that we often think about having been accelerated by warfare actually weren't. The computer, antibiotics, uh, the jet engine, 
Um, these were developed long before the war. And in the case of the computer, well, at least the, 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 the ingredient technologies were developed before the war. In the case of the computer, the, the Annus Mirabilis, the, the amazing year when, when the, all these ideas come together is 1937. And then because of the war, um, the projects all go off into secrecy and they're not able to talk to each other. And actually all they're doing is calculating the trajectories of artillery shells uh, or trying to crack uh, enemy codes. And they're not trying to do anything else. And so it, it's not until the war ends that computing is able to share ideas again and get going again. So actually I think the war retarded the development of that technology. Um, uh, whereas, it, whereas we often think of it as accelerating it. So uh, I'm a bit of a skeptic about the idea that geopolitics plays a part in innovation. And the 1930s were a very desperate time for America, huge unemployment and poverty and misery. And yet it was a time of great innovation, you know, from, from nylon to radar or whatever it was. There, were, there was all sorts of things developed in that decade. So uh, I don't myself think that that uh, a country needs to feel threatened before it does any innovating. Do you think that this could be an innovation moment uh, for for the United States and other uh, advanced economies uh, because of the pandemic, uh, because of this economic shock that will begin to focus a lot more on making our country more efficient, getting rid of regulations that stop people from innovating? I think that's that's like, I think, the positive scenario. But I also worry about us becoming more risk averse, sort of just, you know, retreating, worrying about foreign competition, worrying about immigrants, worrying about trade. I can kind of see it going both ways. What's, what do you think? Should I be an well, optimist? Um, I think on balance, I'm an optimist. I think this will turn into a, a moment when we take seriously the need for uh, innovation. And if you look at what's happened just in the last couple of months in terms of stripping away the requirements to take months to approve a new, if not years, to approve a new medical device, um, uh, all sorts of rules and regs that, that, were, that were extremely slowly implemented, killing entrepreneurship by make, taking too long over decisions, all sorts of things have changed in that respect. Uh, and we've seen just how damaged we were by this over-regulation of certain things. So, for example, diagnostic tests, new medical devices taking up to six years to get approval, that has deterred a lot of innovators. And that is the reason we haven't had ready and waiting for this pandemic, the sort of um, point-of-care instant DNA diagnostic machines that, frankly, we, sh we could have invented um, half a decade ago. So um, I, I do think that we've, we've had a wake-up call uh, about the fact that it is, uh, it is not painless to stifle innovation by over-regulation and by slow decisions by bureaucrats. That said, uh, I do also uh, agree with you that, um, that we do possibly face the, the threat of, uh, you know, shutting down the world economy in, in uh, shutting down world trade, for example. A trade war would be disastrous because the whole point of trade is so that if somebody produces an innovation somewhere else in the world, you don't have to say, oh, bad luck, I don't live in that country, I can't have it. We don't say that about neighboring towns. Why should we say that about neighboring countries? Um, so if, for example, the first vaccine is developed not in America but in another country um, for this uh, disease, 
would you really like to feel that it's just bad luck? Americans are not going to get access to it? Of course not. Uh, so if it's the true for vaccines, why not for every other innovation? Um, uh, so I hope that we learn the lesson from this, that we are connected. Trade does have to be done equitably. Uh, and there are aspects of trade, like trading in um, unhealthy uh, plants, animals, and diseases that we have to be quite careful about. But there are other aspects where we should encourage as much free trade as possible so that we can get access to the ingenuity of people all over the world. Why do innovators innovate? There's a lot of discussion lately about these very wealthy entrepreneurs, whether it's you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or the guys at Google saying, sure, they're innovators and they've created these companies which seem to be providing very valuable services to many people. But you know what? They didn't, they didn't need to become multi-billionaires. They didn't even need to become billionaires. Uh, they would be just fine if they were a lot less wealthy. And if we had big wealth taxes, it really, it really wouldn't affect the amount of innovation in the United States. When you look at innovators, do you think that's true based on your experience? And just more broadly, why do, why do people start companies? Why do they, why do they invent? Why do they innovate? To become well, trillionaires? <laughs> human beings are ambitious. And, and the, the ones who uh, make a small success want to make a big success, and the ones who make a big success want to make an even bigger success, and so on. I think that's in the nature of, of, of human beings. And if you look at people like Thomas Edison or Jeff Bezos even, you find certain common themes. Um, one of them is relentless ambition, extremely hard work, but another is a tolerance for failure. And I think that's a, a key ingredient because um, it, it, uh, uh, Edison was constantly trying things that didn't work. And he knew that trial and error was the way he was going to solve most of his problems. So when he was looking for a material to use for the filament of a light bulb, the 20 other people around the world who had also invented light bulbs independently all tried one or two materials and then said, I found one that's good enough. Edison kept going. He kept trying different things. He tried over 5,000 different types of plant material until he settled on a particular kind of Japanese bamboo that made a particularly good filament so that his light bulb lasted longer than other people. That's what marks the great entrepreneur out from other people. And I've talked to Jeff Bezos about this, and uh, it's very clear that he regards trial and error as a key ingredient. He wants to make mistakes. And by Jove, he did make mistakes. If you look at the history of Amazon, it's a series of disasters, but a series of successes as well, um, and eventually a very big success. Um, he, you know, he's on record as saying, if you're not trying lots of different things, then you're not going to succeed. So the, the role of trial and error is, an, is a crucial ingredient in these people's lives. Um, just keep trying things uh, and you will eventually succeed. Don't expect to get it right first time uh, and don't expect, don't be discouraged by a failure. Yet I see, at least today, people sort of exult in the failure of, of entrepreneurs if they're, if they're already wealthy. I think of Elon Musk, who tomorrow, hopefully his SpaceX will launch two Americans uh, into orbit for the first time in American soil since 2011. Except I, 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 when, when, when it doesn't work, when one of his 
when, when there's a problem with his you know autonomous cars or there's a problem with uh, one of his space launches, a lot of people just they 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 love it. I mean, have we again? I mean, you're you're not an American, but speaking you know about the United States, do you see that in the in the United Kingdom as well, where there's just oh, it's some far worse. Just want, they want to see that failure. It's far worse over here. Anyone who succeeds in the UK is automatically targeted by the media and everyone else. They're longing to find the feet of clay in a successful person. Uh, it's in America. You have it luck. You know the, the entrepreneurs. They have it have it easy. Yeah, sure. Elon Musk gets a few brickbats thrown at him. Try living in the UK. He would he would find our media far worse uh, over here. So uh, I, I think. It's a general problem around the world uh, that we uh, resent success, um, uh, but it can be pretty bad in 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 some countries. Um, and yeah, I'm not I'm not pretending we should feel sorry for these guys. They've got billions, so so they uh, they don't deserve. Um, you know, they, we don't need to waste our sympathy on them. Uh, but uh, it would be nice if occasionally a country like yours or mine regarded. You know, a good old-fashioned engineer who built up a business as a hero, instead of someone who's, you know, good at singing a song or good at fighting a war or you know all these sort of fourteenth-century things that, that that we that we worship instead. You know, um, the, the the real heroes of the world are the people who did innovations. And by the way, it isn't always about money and gain. Uh, I mean, the, my favorite story in the whole of my book is is about the mosquito net impregnated with insecticide, which has changed the face of malaria control spectacularly. It reversed an increase in malaria, turned it into a decrease. It saved millions of lives. It's an incredibly simple, low-tech technology. I tracked down where it came from. I didn't know who'd invented it. Turns out the key experiment was in Burkina Faso in 1983 when a a bunch of French and Vietnamese and Burkina Faso scientists um, did a lot of very controlled, carefully controlled experiments to see whether a mosquito net prevented mosquitoes biting you, to see whether adding insecticide made any difference, and to see whether tearing holes in the net made any difference. And it turned out that an impregnated net is very, very good at deterring mosquitoes, even if it's got holes in it. And uh, so eventually the Gates Foundation picked up on this, uh, and has promulgated this simple low-tech solution around the world. Billions of nets have been distributed. They have saved millions of lives. Nobody's made a penny out of it. Uh, it's a wonderful story. So let's hear it for the innovators. They do change the world for the better. Uh, you, meant, you mentioned Edison. Uh, I wonder, and I, I'm guessing it's not very much, how much time is spent in the typical American school, maybe it's the same way in Great Britain, talking about how we got from there to here, how we got from most advanced economies, people making $2 today to getting where we are. I, I, think, I think if you ask most people, they would say, well, um, it was, I don't know, uh, coal, maybe coal or we discovered oil or, or maybe we exploited uh, through colonization, we took the wealth of other countries or, 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 or something, sort of that story uh, broadly is not understood, much less the key people who played a role. You mentioned Edison or the other or the other great inventors and entrepreneurs throughout throughout history. I I feel this is terribly important. I think uh, we teach far too little about the history of technology, 
about the history of invention. Uh, we used to, we don't anymore. And um, it's, uh, I mean, that's part of the motivation for writing this book. One of the things I wanted to do was just write down a lot of stories. You know, the story of the Wright brothers, the great story ones, of a Thomas, lot of great ones. Thomas Ed Edison, stories of vaccination, um, stories of failure as well as stories of success. But, you know, stories about people tinkering with machines and coming up with better machines. And I think they're much more interesting than stories about people winning battles or stories about people falling in love. Yeah, those are fun too. I like reading those kind of books as well. But, you know, how many books are there about that kind of stuff compared with the stuff that really changed the world, which is invention uh, and technology? You're talking, uh, you know, sometimes you'll talk to, you know, 12 year olds, 13 year olds, 14 year olds. Is there, can you think of a, a story that, you know, maybe, maybe they've heard of Edison. Is there a story, boy, you should know this story. I bet you haven't heard it. Yeah, I, I tell the story in the book of a, of a rather remarkable woman called Lady Mary Pierpoint, who was a sort of, uh, she was a rich uh, literary uh, person in early 1700s London. Uh, but she went off to Constantinople as the wife of the ambassador there. And while she was there, she got to know women who in the Ottoman Empire in harems. And she discovered that they were deliberately giving their kids very small doses of smallpox from people who had recovered from the disease. And she had very, very nearly died of smallpox herself. And she was terrified that her children would die of smallpox. So she brought this habit called engrafting back to Britain and uh, tried to persuade people that this was a good thing to do. She did it. She engrafted her own children, inoculated them, vaccinated, we'd call it today. Um, and uh, she was almost killed by the mob. Uh, she was uh, savaged by the medical establishment, this irresponsible, dangerous experiment. How dare an ignorant woman bring this idea back, etc. Something similar happened in uh, North America around the same time. Um, Zabdiel Boylston got got the, the, the notion of vaccination from uh, um, Cotton Mather, uh, and he set out to vaccinate 300 people in, in Boston, uh, and the mob went after him, and he had to hide for 14 days in a closet to say, otherwise he would have been killed. Uh, but in fact, he was saving lives on a grand scale. So um, I think that's a, that's a good story to tell people, to remind them that innovation is often unpopular, but is often very, very important. Uh, this is now the policy advice portion uh, of our conversation, where I ask you, uh, since every, uh, forget about world leaders, later, you know, states and cities, uh, they all want more innovation. They all want their cities to be innovation hubs. What policy advice would you give to national leaders about being more innovative? Is it deregulation? Is it is it is it spending a you know a trillion new dollars on 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 R and D? What any policy advice? Well, uh, I've actually argued that one of the things we should be doing is buying out patents, because patents tend to get in the way of innovation rather than helping it. And you see when they expire, the three D printing patents expired recently. There was a fervent ferment of new innovation as a result. So buying out patents prematurely. I'd love to see patents reformed so they're less. Uh, in, so they're less easy to get and they do less harm. Um, uh, but I also think that governments should try prizes more. Uh, governments can dangle a prize in front of uh, a problem 
and lure people into trying to tackle it. And that way you're not specifying which team you're backing. You'll only afterwards decide who shall win the prize by reaching the goal that you've set. Um, and the prize doesn't have to be a lump sum. It can be a future contract. So the Gates Foundation, again, has done this quite well in recent years when it, uh, it's, it, it offered a, a huge reward for the first companies that could produce a vaccine against pneumococcus, which is killing a lot of children in the developing world. Um, but it wasn't a lump sum. It was uh, essentially a contract to produce the, the virus at a certain price uh, so that they could be rewarded for doing so. So I think that's an imaginative way of doing things. And if I was government, instead of giving grants and subsidies to people to do specific things, having sat through committees deciding what they should be given grants for, uh, I think I would set up a, a prize. Like the UK has actually set one up for antimicrobial resistance. Anyone who can... Um, uh, find a good uh, solution to this, we'll get a large uh, reward at the end. So that's something that we could try, which is much less specific in trying to pick a technology. It's more agnostic about how people are going to reach these these rewards. And finally, I wonder if you could do something that Hollywood has failed to do. I wonder if you could tell me about a, an optimistic future 20 30 years from now, which when people hear about, they'll think, well, that's a future I would like to live in. I hope I make it. I, I would love my children to grow up in that future. What could that future look like if we continue to push forward the technological frontier? Well, in 30 years time, I'll be 92 years old. And I fully expect to be living quite comfortably in probably an old person's home, but with much better technology to help me uh, do that than is available today and much better medicine. And I hope to be on a senolytic drug, which will have, which will have uh, slowed down not just the symptoms of my aging, but the cause of my aging so that I won't be deteriorating uh, fast. Although I will expect to die before I'm 100, I, I'm not expecting life extension to, to go much beyond that. Um, but at the same time, I'm a keen naturalist, and I will fully expect, in fact, I'm confident that by then we will have larger national parks, less of the planet devoted to growing food. Agriculture's footprint will have shrunk. It's shrinking at the moment. Um, we'll have more forests. We'll have more wildlife. We'll have saved not only many of the species that are going extinct, but brought them back to abundance. In my own life, I've seen humpback whales go from 5,000 in the 1960s to 80,000 alive today, um, uh, all because of technological improvement in things like agriculture, but also in conservation. Because the other thing I want to see when I'm 92 years old is that we've used gene editing to bring back some of the extinct species that have gone extinct. And I'd like to see flocks of passenger pigeons flying around in North America again. We could do that with gene editing, I think, by then. So ask me back, please, James, in <laughs> 2050 and see if I'm right. <laughs> Great. Matt, thanks for having the conversation. Again, uh, the new book, which I'm going to put right in front of my face here, uh, Matt Ridley, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Thanks a lot. Thank you.